0: Heavenly Father, I approach this text with fear and trembling. I ask that you would be gracious with me as I attempt to proclaim your word faithfully this morning. Be gracious with my brothers and sisters and all who have gathered here as well that we might hear it well this morning. It's easy, Father, in our spiritual arrogance to think that we are zealous for Your name. It's easy, especially living in this valley with all the blessings that we have to neglect our desperate and daily and moment-by-moment need of You. And so I ask, Lord, that You would do what only Your Spirit can do for us this morning and that is to enable us to see clearly that we are not as zealous as we ought to be. In fact, Father, many of us are lukewarm. Many of us are barely alive. You know this to be so, and we know this to be so. We are so thankful that you brought this great word of love through your Son to the church in Laodicea, and we're so thankful that you've enabled us to bring it here today to this pulpit in this gathering that we too might be blessed With this hard but loving word. Father, for your glory, for the well being of this church, and for the gospel witness in this community, I ask that you would make us zealous, each and every one of us. I ask that we as a church would be known for our zeal for Christ, our deep love for our Savior our desire to know and submit to Your Word. We know, Father, that the flesh is contrary to these things. So overcome our flesh, overcome our sin, overcome our arrogance this morning, and make us a zealous people. I ask that You would do it, Father, and be pleased to do it. For Your name's sake. Amen. For those of you who know the book of Revelation, you knew we were going to get here. We thought Sardis was hard. Sardis was not. Laodicea is the hardest letter to hear. Um, I'm humbled to preach it, convicted to preach it. I don't want to stand before you as a hypocrite. So pray for me, please. When I was teaching at the community college I, uh, my last few years I worked with an English teacher who was nearing retirement and she came to work each day and technically she, she taught her classes but whatever zeal she had for the classroom had been lost years prior. To make matters worse she had convinced herself that she was still all in, still working hard and at the top of her game. So when Her colleagues came to her lovingly and her students. Confronting her, she became defensive. And in her arrogance, she was unable to see what a poor teacher she had become and the negative impact it was having on hundreds of students each year. As we come to the end of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus dictates the last of his seven letters to the church in Laodicea. And he rebukes them for their prideful mediocrity. They were lukewarm and they thought they were red hot for Christ. The city of Laodicea was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. That's where we were last week. And it was placed in, the city was located in this fertile valley, the Lysus Valley, and it was about six miles Away from Hierapolis. Hierapolis was six miles to the north, and Colossae, which you know, the letter that was written by Paul to the church in Colossae, was about 11 miles to the west. Laodicea was a thriving metropolis. There would be a lot of parallels between Laodicea and San Jose, California. It was a very wealthy city, it was considered a financial capital of the region. It specialized in everything from agriculture to marble to textiles, they actually made this black wool that was so popular and so precious that people came from all of the empire to get it. They actually had their own hospital. They were successful in medical technology and they specialized in healing various diseases of the eye. In other words, Laodicea was a very wealthy, successful, technologically advanced place. Sound familiar to you? In 60 AD, the city was leveled by an earthquake. But they were so wealthy that when Emperor Nero said, I will help you rebuild your city, they said, We don't need it. We have enough money. And so pride and success permeated the Laodicean culture. And what we learn from Jesus' letter is that the church in Laodicea, the church was not immune to the pride and success that permeated the popular culture. All the other churches that Jesus addressed received some commendation of some kind, save Laodicea. I just imagine how they must have felt as they're rehearing this letter being read, and church after church is hearing commendation after commendation, and they come to Laodicea, the last letter, and all they get is a rebuke. And not just a rebuke, my beloved, it is a stinging rebuke as our Lord calls them out for their mediocrity and pride. As he threatens to spit them out of his mouth and he calls them to be zealous and repent before it's too late. I think that we can say of all the letters, the letter to Laodicea should resonate most deeply with the Western church today. It certainly should resonate with every church here in Silicon Valley. Because we are modern day Laodicea and I would say that the Church here, especially in the South Bay, is very much like the church was then. So I pray that we will hear Jesus and the Spirit of God speak to us here at Christ Community Church, so that for those of us who are lukewarm, we will wake up. We will not leave here today with the same danger that Laodicea found themselves in. And I want to do that by asking three very simple questions, but each question is a salvific question. Number one, are we zealous for Christ? Number two, are we dependent upon Christ? And number three, are we loved by Christ? Three questions I want you to answer for yourself, and I want you to answer collectively for our church. Can we say as a church we are zealous and dependent and loved by Jesus? If not, then we need to repent and be zealous too. The theme of the sermon is this. Zealous Christianity is the only true Christianity. Zealous Christianity is the only true Christianity. All others are counterfeit and will be rejected by God. So this letter doesn't leave us plan B. We are either zealous for Christ individually and zealous for Christ as a church, or we're not, and if we're not, Christ says, I'm spitting you out. I'm not keeping you. With all sobriety, let's go to point one. Are we, are you, zealot, zealous for Christ? Look at verse 14. And to the angel of the Lord in Laodicea right? Jesus is speaking, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So our Lord doesn't draw from His glorious characteristics that John revealed in Revelation chapter 1. Instead, he sets himself in juxtaposition to the church in Laodicea. He said, I am the faithful and true witness. I am God's yes, amen, truly, truly. I am the one, the leader of the new creation. And he identifies himself like that because he's going to tell Laodicea, listen, if you want to participate in the new creation that I will bring when I come again in glory, then you need to repent and be zealous again. Otherwise, you will not have me, and you will not have the eternal kingdom. Laodicea was in trouble. They had lost their zeal. They had lost their gospel witness to the world. They needed to hear and to heed the words of this faithful and true witness, or be lost forever. And the same is true for us, my beloved. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, I know your works. You are neither cold, nor hot. Now if you've heard this passage preached before, you've probably heard it preached multiple ways. I think in large part because we missed we missed the contextual setting of Laodicea. It's not it's not as complicated as people have made it over the years. Laodicea was located in, in the Lycus Valley, right next to the Lycus River, but the river was it was contaminated, you couldn't drink from it. And so as a as a thriving populous city, they needed to import their water from outside and they did they actually have aqueducts that are still there today you can go and see the aqueducts that brought the water into the city 2,000 years ago it's extraordinary so they brought their water in from the hot springs of Hierapolis Hierapolis was uh, six miles to the north but by the time it traveled six miles in the aqueducts it was no longer hot it was lukewarm and it was filled with mineral deposits and it did not taste good you could drink it but it didn't taste good They also brought in cold water from Colossae, which was 11 miles west. But by the time it got there, it too was lukewarm. And so the hot water then was considered a tonic. It was good for you to drink. The cold water, as we know, even today, was refreshing. In other words, both cold and hot, Jesus says, are good. And he said, I wish you were one or the other. I wish you were cold or hot, but you're neither. You are lukewarm. You are repulsive, he says. Look at verse 15 again. He said, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. Three times he makes the statement, this is how I expect you to be, but you're not. He said, because you're not, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus takes the nauseating, lukewarm water that the citizens of Laodicea knew so well and he says, this is your work for me. You see, Jesus expects his people, those who claim his name, to be either hot or cold, medicinal or refreshing, productive or invigorating. One or the other. But because they were neither, because their faith was lukewarm, tepid would be a good word. Disgusting would be a good word. Jesus said in verse 16, I will spit you. I will spew you out of my mouth. It's graphic and intended to be. The Greek literally says, I will vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, you make me sick. You nauseate me. I'm about to vomit because of what I see in you. These are brutal words of our Lord. And I don't, want to, for, I don't want for a moment to sugarcoat them and tell you that's not what he meant because that's exactly what he meant. He said it in love but he said it in all seriousness. What I find amazing, my beloved, it wasn't the lovelessness of Ephesus or the false teachings of Pergamum. It wasn't the sleepiness, sleepiness of Sardis that made Jesus wanted to throw up. It wasn't even the temple prostitution and the sexual immorality of Thyatira. And you say, what could be worse than temple prostitution? What could make Jesus more nauseated than temple prostitution? He says right here, it's being lukewarm. It's lacking zeal. And you thought, well, I I thought I had it covered with temple prostitution, but I might be in big trouble here. Now, this may sound harsh, especially in a culture where Most teaching from most pulpits promotes a mediocre gospel, a mediocre Christianity. Make a profession of faith, get baptized, go to church for an hour a week, call upon God when you're in need, and then live your life as you see fit. In a culture steeped in lukewarm Christianity, many Christians will hear Jesus' rebuke and think that's unreasonable, that's unfair, where's the grace, where's the mercy? but it reveals a truth about authentic Christianity that I believe we desperately need to hear today. God expects, my beloved, rightfully so. He expects zeal. He expects fervency. He expects His people to be serious about their faith, about Jesus Christ and the kingdom and the gospel. The gospel is not, Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your sins and God made you alive in Christ to be lukewarm. That's not what Paul said. The gospel is not, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood called out of the darkness and into his wonderful light to be spiritually lazy. 1 Peter 2.9. You no, know, my beloved, when the apostle Paul was instructing Titus, on the Christian life, this is what he wrote. Listen, Titus 2.14. Paul said, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. This is authentic Christianity. Being saved and purified so you can be in the power of the Spirit, zealous, so that you can be hot or cold, not lukewarm, not tempted, not revolting to God, but hot or cold for the gospel of Christ. Zealous Christianity is real Christianity. Two weeks ago, 93,000 college football fans crammed into Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia. And they were there to watch their number three Georgia Bulldogs take on the number one Tennessee Volunteers. It was the college football matchup of the year. Both teams undefeated at 8-0, both vying for that top seed to be number one in the country. Georgia walked away handily, beating Tennessee 27-13. to And as, if you watched even the clips of it, the stadium, 93,000 fans all draped in red, all having their red pom-poms, For the entire game, they screamed and they yelled and they revealed their zeal for college football and for their team. So loud at times were they that the players on the field could not call the plays because they could not hear each other. That's zeal. Everyone is zealous for something, my beloved. Everyone is zealous for something. Money, sleep, sex, games, work, movies, food. And our zeal reveals, for better or for worse, what we value most. What we consider supremely worthy of our time, our energy, and our focus. What you're zealous for tells you what you love most. It reveals your heart. And so Jesus rebukes Laodicea because their lukewarm works revealed what? It revealed their lukewarm hearts. They were lukewarm in their faith because their hearts had become lukewarm towards God. Their hearts were no longer captured by the beauty and the majesty and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They had become a church captured by idols. And in their city, that would have been pride. It would have been money. It would have been success. It would have been, listen, it would have been technology that they were captured by, which left Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the kingdom as an add-on An appendage. Necessary duties to go to church and to pray, but nothing to get excited over. Friends, if you claim Christ as Lord and Savior and King, but you do not live as though He is the ultimate love and joy of your life, if you are more passionate and ask yourself this, and you can fill in the categories that I may miss, If you are more passionate about sports than you are prayer, or technology than you are people, if you get more excited about work than you do worship, or words of gossip than you do the Word of God, then you cannot be surprised. When Jesus says to you, if you find me so bland and my kingdom so mediocre, if my work and my Father are so burdensome to you, you cannot be surprised when Jesus says, I will relieve you of the burden and I will spit you out of my mouth and out of my kingdom so you can be zealous for the things of this world now and forever. We cannot be surprised if we live lukewarm lives to hear Christ say these things to us. Zealous Christianity is true Christianity. It's not just the extraordinary Christian or the super saint. It's not just the pastor or the theologian or the missionary that God expects to be zealous in the faith. It is every single professing believer. Every single true church is to be hot or cold for Jesus. After all, my beloved, being saved by grace, forgiven of all of our sins, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ and filled with divine love, how can we not be zealous for God? If those things are true and we profess them to be true, how can we not be zealous for Christ? How can someone profess to love God with what? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then on the other hand say, but I'm lukewarm. They stand in contradiction to each other. Jesus knows this, and we know this. This is not new to you. You know that tension in your own soul between being a real follower of Christ and pretending. You know when you're going through the motions. Maybe you're going through the motions right now. You're here because it's Sunday morning and the church gathers on Sunday morning. But if you had your druthers, you'd be somewhere else. say, oh, you know, it's a beautiful day outside. I wouldn't mind being here or there. My beloved, that's lukewarm. That's lukewarm. When you were, we had a chance to sing together as a church, if you were singing but not really singing, you say, what is the difference? My mouth was open. I was making sound, yes. But were you singing unto the Lord or were you just singing because that's what we do? When you were hearing the passages read and the prayers lifted up and you were listening but not really listening, my beloved, that's what it means to be lukewarm, not zealous, not passionate, not committed. So first, point and I pray that it has all the weight of Jesus' words on it we see that lukewarm Christianity is a nauseating Christianity it's nauseating to God and it should be nauseating to us Jesus rightly expects his people to be zealous for him and his kingdom but what is it and what was it specifically for Laodicea that led to their being lukewarm in the first place what happened to them Something happened at some point in time. And the question I want us to ask is, do we have some of these same nauseating struggles today? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Are we dependent upon Christ? Are we zealous for Christ? Yes or no? Are we dependent upon Christ? Yes or no? Look at verse 17. Jesus is going to explain to them the problem. He said, you say I am rich. I have have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, I thought what he said initially was hard. This is even worse. The Laodicean church had this perception of themselves that did not match reality. They thought much better of themselves than their true conditions in the eyes of God. Like the physical riches of Laodicea, and many in the church may have been rich too, They thought, though, that they were spiritually rich. They thought they were prosperous in their faith, lacking in nothing. And that means they likely had, listen very carefully, my book, they likely had all the appearances of a healthy church. They probably had all nine marks of a healthy church. Faithful preaching and teaching, faithful gathering weekly, community groups, small groups, prayer services, outreach, evangelism, member care. They probably had it all there. What a shock it must have been for them to hear Jesus say to them, you are lukewarm and nauseating to me, and, oh, by the way, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Brutal, brutal, brutal words. Our Lord piles them up. You say, why is he being so mean? He's not. He's loving them. He wants to puncture. He wants to pierce their pride. He wants to make it into a heart that has become hardened to him and blinded to their own condition. And so he speaks plainly. He says, you're not healthy. You're wretched. You're not envied. You're pitied. You're not rich. You're poor. You think you can see the kingdom, but you're utterly blind. He said, you you think that you're covered. This is amazing. Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you think you're covered by my righteousness, but you are naked. You have no covering. It is the harshest rebuke of the seven letters and I would argue one of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament. And it is intentional. Jesus wants it to be hard. He wants to penetrate their pride so they can see not only that they were, were have become lukewarm, but why they had become lukewarm. He wants them to see the problem so he can provide an answer. When you think you've arrived spiritually, my beloved, and I pray none of you are there, I mean, if you really thought that, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. When you think that you have arrived spiritually, you no longer need God's daily presence and power in your life, God will become an afterthought to you. You will no longer hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's where the zeal is, right? When you're hungry and you're thirsty, there's zeal. Instead, you will become complacent in your pursuit of God. No longer seeking him through his word or through prayer or through community or through worship. When you think that you have seen or you see everything clearly, you will no longer grow or desire to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God, which goes on, by the way, for all eternity, even in the heavenly realm. You'll be nonchalant about your Bible studies or attending a Bible study. You won't think you need a discipleship group because you don't need to be discipled. It may, after all, it's you. You've arrived. You won't care about learning how to read your Bible or interpret it accurately or apply it to your life. And when you begin to conclude, my beloved, that you have achieved some form of personal righteousness on your own, when you start to think of yourself as being justified before God because of your good works, your high moral thoughts, your generous giving, your kind words, And then you say, that righteousness, when I compare to other Christians, I'm so much better than they. You will no longer take sin seriously. You will no longer feel compelled to come before God daily and confess your sins. You will no longer see that your righteousness, if it doesn't come from Christ, it's not righteous at all. This was Laodicea. They were a mess, my beloved. So Jesus says to them in verse 18, look with me. He says, I I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When Jesus says, I counsel, he says, this is not optional. He's saying you you can obey or disobey but if you want to be part of my new creation, if you want to be a true and faithful witness, then you must heed and submit to this warning. And he, he gives them three movements of their heart to counteract these three spiritual infirmities. The first thing he says is you've got to buy gold refined in fire from me. They thought they were spiritually rich. They were probably physically rich. And oftentimes we equate those two, don't we? For some reason, the more money we make, the more we think that we, are, we, are, we have spiritually arrived somehow. Jesus says, listen, you may think you're spiritually mature, you may think you're doing well in the faith, but I'm telling you, you're impoverished and you're barely alive. You better come to me and you better buy gold from me. You better buy righteousness from me that was forged in the fires of Calvary so that I will make you alive and your spiritual state will be because of your identity in me as a disciple of Christ, as a son or daughter of God the Father, not some spiritual maturity you think you've completed on your own. And then he says in verse 18, latter part, middle part, he says, white garments, you come and buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. They were so arrogant and so prideful in their self-righteousness, they thought that they were doing good. And Jesus says, you don't understand, before my eyes and before my father's eyes, I see your nakedness, I see your sin. What they were wearing proudly, and maybe many of them were wearing that black wool that was so expensive, that was so sought after. Jesus says, turn in your black wool garment and get the white garment of purity from me. Even though you are poor, come and buy it from me. I will give it to you freely by grace. He reminds them that any righteousness, listen, any righteousness of any kind that you have that's not imputed to you, given to you freely by grace through faith in Christ is not righteousness. You cannot stand on your own and evaluate your life thinking I'm doing so well, I'm doing so good, I am so holy, independent of the righteousness of Christ. Without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, You do not have that white covering. We're fast, aren't we, to use the things in this life, our accomplishments, our good deeds, our high moral thoughts as religious coverings. We're quick to do that. We say to ourselves, if I faithfully attend church, it will cover my lustful thoughts. It doesn't work like that. Well, if I give to the poor, it will cover my greed. If I take care of my ailing parents, then it will cover my failing marriage. Jesus is quick to remind them the purity they needed and the purity every single believer needs must come from Him by grace through faith. It must come by our having faith in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that in fact He did pay for our sins in full, that in fact, the Father did receive that sacrifice and he was pleased to receive it. And that by grace through faith, by our believing in Jesus, we receive from God the Father the righteousness, the purity and holiness of Jesus. And it's so that when God looks upon us now, even now in all your sin, you are covered with the righteousness of Christ and he sees you as holy and pure. Even this moment, my beloved, so Jesus says, buy gold from me so you can be rich. Buy white garments from me so you can be holy. And then lastly, he says, latter part of verse 18, solve from me to anoint your eyes so that you may what? So that you can see. He's saying to the church in the United States, you're utterly blind. You're not seeing me clearly. You're not seeing the kingdom clearly. Now, remember at the beginning of the sermon, I told you there was a hospital there. And the hospital specialized in the study of ophthalmology. The healing of eyes in fact they actually had a very famous ophthalmologist by the name of demosthenes philalithes <laughs> yeah it's probably not right he used this special phrygian powder and he'd mix it up and he put it on his his patient's eyes and it brought some healing and so when jesus is saying here he say, listen I'm not talking about physical blindness. I'm talking about spiritual blindness. And he says, come to me. I am the great ophthalmologist. I'm the only one who can make a blind man see. And so he calls those in the Laodicean church to come to him so they can see what? Well, first and foremost, to see their wretched state. That in their arrogance, he says, you must see first and foremost that you are poor, blind, and naked. But then he says, I'm not gonna leave you there. I'm not gonna leave you in that state of wretchedness. If you come to me, Jesus says, I will enable you to see truly the true medicine that you need to overcome your lukewarmness, to overcome your pride. And you know what that medicine is? He says, it's me. Christ says, come to me. I am the medicine. My beloved, all three illustrations, being poor, blind, and naked, they all reveal something you already know but we struggle to live out they all reveal our 100% total and complete dependence upon Jesus Christ. Your whole life, certainly eternal life, is dependent upon your relationship with him and the zeal that we're supposed to have and the lukewarm state that we often live is in a direct relationship to whether or not we see that we're truly dependent upon Jesus Christ. For everything. You see, any church, and we can say any Christian, who lives as though he or she no longer needs the daily presence and power of God to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ will necessarily become lukewarm. You must. It is our dependence on Christ that in part keeps us passionate for Christ. Right? We're passionate for things we need. Aren't we? What we need, we pursue. Parents oftentimes, by God's grace, are really committed to their children's education because they know a good education will set them up for success in the future. So they're passionate about it. They're zealous about it. Husbands and wives that are serious about their marriage are passionate to keep their marriage grounded in Christ because they know it's the foundation of a healthy home. So they work on it. Friends are zealous about spending time together with other friends, making time and proximity because they know without it the friendship fades. My beloved, even the newborn baby, I was watching little Elijah George just gaga over his mama. Even the baby who is zealous for the mother because the mother brings the milk. And so when that baby is hungry and crying, he is passionate for his mom your dependence upon Jesus Christ will determine the degree to which you are zealous for Jesus Christ and one of the most simple teachings in the gospel of John chapter 15 that Jesus brought to his disciples that we get so clearly even though we don't live in in a vineyard or or a time of cultivation like that he said this Jesus John 15:5 a verse you know well he said I am the vine you are the branches Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will what? He will bear much fruit. You'll live a zealous life. But then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's extreme. You abide in Christ, he abides in you, you'll bear much fruit. You'll be zealous for Christ. You will not be lukewarm. You'll be serious about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom and the lost. But you do not abide in Christ. And you can do nothing that is pleasing to him or the kingdom. Absolutely nothing. Living a life dependent on Christ will be a zealous life because you will pursue him with all your might because you need him with all your might. Do you know that, my beloved? In all your richness, in all the technology that we see here, do you know how radically dependent you are upon Christ for everything, for every single thing in your life? So first, we see that we are to be zealous for Christ. Secondly, I pray you see that we are dependent upon Christ. And I want to close with the necessity of being loved by Christ. The letter, as we have seen, it's a stinging rebuke, but it's a rebuke done in pure love. Christ utters these harsh words to them. He utters these harsh words to us and any church who has an ear to hear today because He loves us so much. Point number three, are we loved by Christ? Are we loved by Christ? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's not saying this out of anger. He's not saying this because he hates them. He's not even saying this to to make them disappointed or discouraged or depressed. And it might have been a very depressing response, especially after hearing what he said to Philadelphia. Commendation after commendation and all we get is a rebuke. These are loving words of correction. Fully intending to get them back on course. It was in line with the sage, Proverbs 3.12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he, what? Loves. Loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It was Jesus' love and delight for his church that compelled him to reprove his church, to reveal that they were lukewarm and prideful. It was his desire to discipline, and that word in the Greek literally means to train, to train them up in the way they should go. Now, culturally, we hear this, and we really struggle today. We're in a very strange moment, in Western civilization. We, we've been trained here in the West to hear every correction as an attack against us. You're correcting me, but it's not in love, it's an attack. You're doing it because you hate me, not because you love me. And because we have this warped sense of biblical rebuke born out of divine love, it's one of the reasons that parents struggle so much disciplining their children today, because they think they're being mean It's one of the reasons that churches, healthy churches, do not practice church discipline in line with Matthew 18 because they think they're being judgmental. Jesus was not swayed, praise God, by public opinion. He is the faithful and true witness. He will speak the truth in love. And so he says to Laodicea, as he says to us, be zealous and what? Repent. Be zealous and repent. Cease being lukewarm. Stop going through the motions, looking like a Christian, talking like a Christian. Is there anything worse, my beloved, than Christian ease from a hypocritical heart? You hear it and it stings your ear. Rightly so. Are they your words? Is it your heart? He says, confess your arrogance before my Father. Repent of your being wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked and be zealous once again. At one point, Laodicea was a zealous church on fire for Christ. That word zealous in the Greek, it's a, it's a term, it's an onomatopoeia. You know what that means? An onomatopoeia is a word that it's the, the, the word is supposed to sound like what it represents. So in the Greek, for example, this is zalao. I'm not quite sure how this fits, but it literally means boiling water or water that's boiling over. So it's supposed to imitate that sound very much like the hot springs in Hierapolis that made their way to Laodicea and became lukewarm. Jesus is saying, don't be lukewarm, don't be tempted, don't be revolting, be zealous, boiling over in your love for me. Depending upon me, deeply committed with, listen, with the matching affections of the heart. Jesus says, to me and my kingdom and the gospel of grace. In other words, he says, repent and be zealous. Be a zealous Christian because zealous Christianity is the only true Christianity. Do you see what he's calling Laodicea too? He's saying, you must be authentic in your faith because an inauthentic faith, a lukewarm faith, an arrogant faith is not real faith. It's not saving faith. And so they were in great danger, weren't they? J.C. Ryle, many of you know him well because you're working through his book on holiness, the, the great 19th century evangelical Anglican priest. He said this about zealous Christians. He said, a zealous Christian does not care whether he lives or dies. A zealous Christian does not care if he is healthy or sick, whether he is rich or poor, popular or offensive, whether he gets blame or praise, honor or shame. None of these things matter to a zealous Christian. He cares only about, listen, one thing to bring joy to the heart of his Savior. He cares only to honor his Savior, to please his Savior, to bring joy to the heart of the one who gave himself for us. That's zealous Christianity. Jesus was calling them back to himself, back to a real saving faith, because in their state, he knew it was counterfeit. And if they continued on that path, the end would be judgment, and he would be the judge. Look at verse 20. This is the judge now standing at the door. Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now you hear that in the context of this passage, and you say, wow, you know, Revelation 3.20, I've heard that for years as an evangelical verse, as a verse of salvation. And I've heard it taught that you know Jesus is standing at the door of everyone's heart and he's knocking on the door of the heart. And if the person would just open up that door and let Jesus in, they would commune with Jesus. Jesus was them and they would be saved. But I now know, Pastor, in light of this sermon, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. And you are right. It is a verse that is woefully taken out of context. Jesus is saying, listen, I told you to be zealous and repent or I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And then he says to them, I'm at the door. This is urgent. I'm knocking right now. And I'm going to respond to you. He's speaking to the church in Laodicea and hopefully speaking to us. So I'm going to respond to you in one of two ways. I'm at the door. I'm knocking. I'm going to respond in one of two ways. If they, re- if they refused to heed his warning, if they rejected his word and remained complacent, in their arrogance and their mediocrity, he said, then I will be your judge and not your savior. If they leave Jesus outside of their presence, he's on the outside knocking, outside of their day-to-day lives. If they continue as a church to go through the motions, they meet, they pray, they gather, but their hearts are not truly committed to Jesus Christ. He said, "I'm I'm gonna spit you out, I'm gonna take away your lampstand, I'm gonna remove your crown, you will no longer be my bride. My beloved, Jesus standing at the door knocking, it's not an evangelical message telling the unsaved to let Jesus in so they can be saved. It is a dire warning to those who profess faith in him but are living lukewarm lives. That's the door, that's the knock, that's the judge. And it's a warning to change and change quickly before it's too late. But what if you do respond? Later part of verse 20, he said, if anyone, anyone, so you're not that lukewarm, you're not too lukewarm to not be redeemed. If anyone, Jesus says, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this is not only the opposite of judgment, it is the answer to how they overcome being lukewarm. Did you see that? First, Jesus says, I'm offering you communion again. I'm here, I'm ready, I'm eager to sit down with you, to eat with you, to commune with you, to relate to you. In other words, he's saying the first first century Mediterranean culture to have a meal together was a sign of intimacy. And he's saying, I want to be intimate again with you. I want to be everything to you. I want your total dependence upon me. I want you to be my bride and I want to be your husband. He's saying it's not too late. So if you're hearing this message and those first two points have put you in a place of great conviction, Christ is saying, I'm at the door, I'm knocking. It's not too late. He's knocking this morning. He's knocking right now for you to say, enough's enough. I'm tired of being lukewarm. I'm tired of going through the motions. I'm tired of my actions not matching my heart. I don't want to live like this anymore in Christ. He says, repent and be zealous. Repent and be zealous and commune with him. Restore, my beloved, the relationship that you once knew. Restore it this morning, if that is you. The image of him being outside and knocking, I found so striking. Jesus is outside knocking to get in. So at some point in time, the loudest see in church, they kicked Jesus out of the church. They said, enough, you, you go outside. We're going to do it our way. They no longer needed him daily, his presence, his power, his sustenance, but now they have a chance. Now they have a chance to open that door and bring Christ in and set that church on fire again. So do we. But there's a second thing here, and then I'll close. Jesus reveals that their communing with him is the means to overcome their lukewarmness, to overcome their lack of, of zeal. Look at verse 20 again. He said, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, the only way, my beloved, that you can become a lukewarm Christian is to kick Jesus out of your life. That's the only way you can do it. You want to get lukewarm? You boot Jesus out. You stop praying to get that extra hour of sleep. You stop being in your word to get that extra hour of work. You forsake the regular gathering of God's people to focus on me time, family time, sports time, whatever time. You trade in the time it takes to share the gospel and make disciples for entertainment or hobbies or leisure. In other words, you deny yourself the regular means of grace that brings you into sweet communion with the Savior. And when you do that, day after day and week after week, you will not be surprised when your heart has drawn cold. You will not be shocked that you are lukewarm because Christ is nowhere around you. He wants to eat with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to pray with you and speak to you through his word. He wants to walk with you moment by moment every single day until you come all the way into heaven. But you have no time for him. When you deny yourself the presence of Jesus, your zeal And passion for Christ and the kingdom will necessarily wane. But the opposite is equally true and this is what makes this so exciting. Jesus is knocking at that door right now. All you gotta do is open it. All you have to as a believer in Christ to do is open that door. Strive to be moment by moment aware of who he is, of what he has done and the life that he's called you to. If you do, my beloved, zeal will return to your life. You cannot be lukewarm and be in the daily presence of the Savior. It is impossible. You bring Christ back into your life regularly, daily, through prayer, through scripture, through community, through discipleship, through works. Do all those things God calls you to do and you will be hot or you will be cold but you will not be lukewarm. You ascend that mountain like Moses did at Mount Sinai, and when you come down, you'll have the Shekinah glory all over you. You'll have the zeal of God all over you because Christ is in your presence. And so I ask you sincerely, isn't that what you really, really want? I mean, as a professing Christian, if you proclaim Christ in his name, don't you want to be committed and have the desires to be committed? Right, Doing the things that we're called to do without the desire to do the things that we're called to do, that's burdensome. Don't you want to have the passion and the zeal of the heart, that deep part of your heart, mind, and soul that loves Christ first and foremost because of His great love for you? A life fully committed and fully dependent on Jesus Christ is the only reasonable life to live. You know that. It's the only reasonable life to live. That's why Paul said, and you heard it read in Romans chapter 12, to make your life what? A living sacrifice because that's the reasonable response to what Jesus Christ did for you. A living sacrifice. Moment by moment, day by day, it's your life in total given to him. What he wants, it's imminently reasonable, reasonable in light of the fact that the Savior gave up everything to have you. Being sold out for Christ makes sense because Christ sold himself out for you. He was zealous for you then and he's zealous for you now. He became poor, you know this, on that wretched cross, giving up everything so that you could be eternally rich. Not rich with earthly treasures, but rich with his Father's love. Rich in his father's presence, rich in his father's house. During those three horrible hours on the cross, when the sun was darkened, the earth went black, Jesus Christ went blind for you. He entered into the eternal darkness, the outer darkness, which the Bible describes as hell, so that you could be brought out of that and brought into what? Into the kingdom of light, so that you could see. I mean, really see. You can see the depth of your sin. You can see the holiness of God and you can see the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God and in that rejoice deeply that He is your Savior. Jesus Christ was literally, He was stripped naked and then He was nailed to that tree so that you what? So that those of us who know that we are spiritually naked before the judgment seat of God so that we could receive The white garment of purity. We could receive the robe of righteousness that was bathed and dipped in the blood of Christ. That our sins would be covered and Jesus' righteousness would be ours. My beloved, it's the power of the gospel that we so desperately need to see this morning as a church. It's the power of the gospel that is able to transform your lukewarm heart into a heart that is zealous for the Lord the person of Jesus Christ becoming wretched pitiful poor blind and naked on the cross so that you a sinner defined by those very things could become glorious honorable rich and covered in the righteousness of Jesus without Christ coming into your presence to dwell with you daily intimately Without the gospel and the sacrifice Jesus made to love you zealously, being on your heart and mind, you'll remain lukewarm. You will remain lukewarm. You will lack the zeal that has the power to change you and to change this world. And if you continue in it, if you don't repent of it, this letter is most clear that Jesus will spit you out of his mouth. So how are you doing? How are we doing as a church in light of this most sober teaching? Well, I pray, I do, I pray that you are as convicted now as I have been all week. I pray that you are grieved in part out of a lack of passion for Jesus Christ. And if you're saying to yourself, I've lost my passion completely. I've, I've given in to the culture. i become complacent. I am. I'm going through the motions. I'm only here because it's Sunday. I don't want you to keep talking. I don't want to hear another word you have to say. If that's you, my beloved, if Christ is on the outside and you're not letting him in, then I praise God for that conviction. Because Jesus says, repent and come in. Repent and let me in. He says to you I praise God for that the worst thing for us individually or collectively would be to remain lukewarm and be spit out of the mouth of Christ so if there's any conviction of any kind take that conviction seize it this morning repent immediately repent of being your lukewarmness repent of your arrogance and your self-reliance Repent of these things and instead do what? Turn to Christ. Hear the tough love of our Savior this morning and make Christ first and foremost. Bring him in and rely upon him every moment of every day for what? For everything. All your relationships, all your decisions, all your hopes, all your dreams, bring to Christ say, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, lead me. And you will be zealous. You will be most zealous For the Lord. It's not too late, my beloved. Verse 21, the one who conquers, Jesus said, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Let's pray. Father, the very fact that we're sitting here this morning right now means it's not too late for us. It's not too late for my brothers and sisters who identify well with Laodicea, who are neither hot nor cold, but repulsingly lukewarm, and they know it, and they know you know it. It's not too late for us as a church, Father, as one body, to realize you've brought us together, you've united us in Christ, to be zealous for Jesus to be serious about the gospel, to be serious about the lost, to be serious about mortifying sin and growing in our faith. Father, as I prayed at the very beginning of this sermon, I ask that you would do this mighty work through your spirit. Our pride prevents us from seeing how lukewarm we really are. It is a deadly pride. Mortify it that we might see that apart from Christ, we are wretched, we are pitiful, we are poor, we are blind, we are naked. And then bathe us in his righteousness. Make us fervent, Father. Zealous for you and your kingdom. Oh, Father, what, a, what an amazing thought for your church here. I ask that you would do it for all your true churches here in this modern day Laodicea in this country and throughout the world. Set your church on fire this morning, Father, that we might be faithful followers of your Son. In his name I pray, amen.